Thank you, uh, worship team, for a wonderful time of worship and praise and song, and now we're going to praise him from his word. So this morning in our study of the Psalms, I'd like you to turn to the last Psalm, Psalms 150, and we're going to get the psalmist's concluding thoughts on this entire book, and I think it's resounding in my mind the as I studied this all week, it's just, just ringing in my ears what he says here. And I, I believe it's David who wrote the psalm. It doesn't say whether he did it or not, but it sounds like David. It smells like David. It looks like David. So I'm thinking it is David. Okay? That's, uh, we apply that symbolism to a duck, right? If it quacks and waddles and looks like a duck, it's a duck, right? Here's what David says as he concludes the book of Psalms, which he wrote the better portion of it. He says, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. And he tells us how. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with string instruments and pipe. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Then he ends the Psalms by saying, praise the Lord. Now, in these final six verses, we have the psalmist's conclusive thought on all that he has written, and it's this. Hallelujah. One word. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord, because when you get down to it, that's the whole point of our lives, to give praise and glory to God. We really and ultimately exist for no other purpose. And as we're going to see, nothing in this universe exists for any other purpose than hallelujah. Praise the Lord. All of creation, all of creation is here enjoined to enter into the praise of the one true God. And you see, every one of these last five psalms begins and ends with the phrase, praise the Lord, or praise Yahweh, or in the Hebrew, hallelujah. In fact, in this final psalm, that phrase or word is used 13 times. As one commentator said, once for each of the 13 tribes of Israel, if you count Ephraim and Manasseh, you know, one of the extra tribes, Uh, The Levites were to not own anything in the land, and Ephraim and Manasseh took uh, the place of Levi, and and there are actually 13 tribes if you count them all, and they were all to the praise and glory of God, or they were to be to the praise and glory of God. The phrase, praise the Lord or praise Him, in these last Five psalms is used almost 45 times. And what began in Psalms 1 is a contrast between the righteous and the wicked and an exhortation to godly living ends in a pantheon of praise to the one we worship and serve. And that's the way it should be. We start out kind of wanting to please God and living for ourselves and trying to be a better person, right? And then we end up knowing Him and loving Him and serving Him and living to the glory and praise of God Almighty. And I believe 
that's by design because as James chapter 4 says, as we draw near unto God, he draws near to us. And the end result is the worship of God in spirit and truth. As John 4, 23 and 24 says. This is the end result of everything right here. This is the goal. This is the, the creme de la creme. This is the apex of the Christian life that David is describing in this psalm. Ultimately and increasingly, our lives are to be lived to the praise and the glory of the one true God manifest in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or as the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.31, he said, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all what? To the glory of God. Everything is to the glory of God. That's why we exist. For the glory of God. People say, well, why do I exist? Why am I here? What's, what's my life to be all about? Why, why am I even alive? Well, you're alive to give glory to God, and that is the only reason you're alive. Now, as we consider this psalm, that's what I want us to consider. What does it mean to do all to the glory and the praise of God? Where, what, and how do we do it? And in order to do that, I've broken the psalm up into four parts. I want us to see the, the everywhere of worship in verse 1, the eternal one of worship in verse 2, the everything of worship in verses 3 through 5, and the end result of worship in verse 6. So to begin with, let's look at the everywhere of worship in verse 1. He begins with a very generic, praise the Lord, and that should ring out literally through the universe because everything was created by the true creator God to praise him. That's why he put it into motion. He wanted them to glorify him, wanted us to glorify him. He wanted the entire creation to sound forth his glory. Then he says, praise God in his sanctuary. He brings it down home. Praise God in the church. Praise him in the assembly. Praise him in the worship center. Uh, in this case, possibly uh, uh, the temple or the uh, the tabernacle, and he says, praise him in his mighty expanse, and that kind of includes everything. You know, go out tonight and look at the mighty expanse that is to praise and honor and glorify God, and you'll be dumbfounded. You know, the exhortation here, as I said, is to all the world, in fact, to all the universe, to praise God, for there are no other gods, as the scripture says, the gods of the people are demons. There is an evil, wicked, rebellious force. Not only mankind is evil, rebellious, and wicked, as we're going to talk about later, but Satan and his demons are too, and they have set themselves up as gods to men in so many ways through so many religions, through so many philosophies and man-made stupidity. There's one true creator God. And he should be the sole focus of our praise and adoration. So David says, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And here David, or the psalmist, exhortation, I'm going to take it as David, is to praise God in his sanctuary, as I said, possibly the tabernacle of the soon-to-be temple as far as it applied to Israel and in his mighty expanse, the heaven and the heaven of heavens. And the invitation is that 
God should be worshipped and praised and glorified everywhere and at all times. There is nowhere on this planet, nowhere in this universe, where the praise of God should not be ringing in our ears. That's how powerful this psalm is and what he's saying here is. Um, that's God's just due, isn't it? If he brought it all into existence, whatever he brought into existence should turn around and praise him, right? For even existing. I don't care what it is, a fish, a goat, my dog, me, every one of us. We should turn around and give the one thanks and glory and praise and adoration for just the fact that you're here, period. You exist for no other reason. You're here for no other reason. Why do you think Satan tries so hard to rob God of being the creator? Why do you think we have these idiotic theories and so on and so forth? Uh, Chispa was selling, telling me they were going to be go to the Galapagos Islands. That's where Darwin came up with his idiotic theories. Those weird-looking lizards, those things that hang out on the rocks and stuff that you see so many pictures of, they exist for the glory of God, period, for no other reason. That's why they exist. That's why the sea monsters exist. That's why dinosaurs existed, so on and so forth. For the glory and praise of God, period. That's it. But man, being created in the image of God in a sinful state, wants that glory for himself, right? I thought about that and thought about this week, and I came up with this theory. I don't think it's wrong. I just have never heard it <laughs> spoken before, but... Man in his sinful state desires the glory that was meant for God. Because he wants to be his own God. And the day you eat of the fruit of the tree, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And you'll receive the glory for yourself that was meant to go to God. That's man. Check it out. Look at, uh, keep your thumb in Psalms 115. Go to Romans chapter 1. And I'm excited. We're going to be going through Romans in... September. This is just a little advertisement. So uh, if you want to get in on that verse-by-verse -verse book study, we're going through the book of Romans coming uh, September. But in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says, for the wrath of God, and keep in mind that we're going to see a little bit later that we are children of wrath, destined for wrath because of our rebellion and sin against God. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. John 3.19, men love the darkness and would not come to the light. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, God has given them a God consciousness. Solomon said God has placed eternity in our hearts. For God made it evident to them. They know that there's a God intrinsically. But we love our sin so much, we love our glory and our exaltation so much that we'd love to get rid of God. Look at what's happening in our nation today. He says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, not muddled. It's not like, oh, I can't look off into space and see the infinitude of a creator. Space can never end, right? 
So it has to go into an infinite dimension, and in order to create that, there has to be an infinite designer, and you know that alone should cause men to bow before God. But he says it's been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Man will not have an excuse before God. He won't stand there and go, well, you know, I was misled. You can figure it out on your own. You don't need some professor or some, quote, expert to figure it out for you. You are without excuse to just look at the creation and go, wow, that's awesome. There must be an awesome designer of it. There must be an awesome God who created it. He says, for even though they knew God, men know there's a God intrinsically. You don't have to tell a child that there's a God. I mean, you can beat it out of him or philosophize it out of him sooner or later, or sin it out of him. But he knows there's a God. They did not, what, glorify him or honor him or praise him as God or give thanks. Why? Because who would... We'd like to thank more than ourselves. Who would we like to glorify more than ourselves? Who would we like to give the credit to more than ourselves? And it says their foolish heart was darkened. They became futile in their speculations. Professing to be wise, they became moreno, fools, morons. And then he says, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Who would man rather worship than himself? How wonderful we are, aren't we? We're just the hottest thing since sliced bread. So man devises isms and philosophies and theories that exalt him. Humanism, communism, socialism, you name it. It exalts the wonder of man. And in a sense, man is a wonderful creature because he was, is created by God. But then it goes on to say, therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity to their so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. That's the first step down in any society is just blatant sexual sin. He says, for they, and here's the reason, for they exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And what is the lie? In the day you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will be like God. That is the lie. This, this has a definite article before. It's not just any lie, but it's the lie that pervades all of mankind. He says, the lie, and worshipped and served who? The creature the creation, rather than the creator. You know, it doesn't take a genius to see the wonder of the creation. It doesn't take a genius to see the wonder of how man is put together, how woman is put together, how, how uh, this world is put together, how it, it just hangs in the balance and everything is perfect from the rotation of the earth to its axis to, you know, whatever. But don't worship that. Worship the one who made it like that. That's the point. And that's the point he's making here. He says, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And Paul says, amen, so be it. 
Now go back to Romans or uh, Psalms chapter 150. You see, God is to be praised throughout the universe, whether it be in heaven or on earth, in the sanctuary, in the churches, in the worship center, or in the heaven of heavens. The eternal gospel, Revelation 14, 7 says, Fear God and give Him glory. Worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. In other words, glorify the Creator and you'll figure it out. Know that you're a creation, you're not your own your own man or your, you know, this great individual who stands alone, an army of one, all that kind of stuff. You know, we, we just pander to man's glory, don't we, in our society. We need to pander to the glory of God, who he is, what he's done, how awesome he is. The entire purpose of the creation ultimately is to praise and worship God and to give Him glory. That is why He brought us into existence. I exist for the glory of God. Any lesser purpose is to miss the mark. Colossians 1.16 simply says, all things were created through Him, speaking of Christ, and then it adds, and for Him. You, you want to know why you were created? You were created by Christ and for Christ, period. That's it. That's why you exist. That's why we live our lives to the glory of God. That's it. Then secondly, the psalmist tells us God is worthy of our praise and worship because of what He has done and because of who He is. He is the eternal one of worship. Look, look at verse 2 again. He says, praise Him from, for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. I love that. I've been thinking about that verse all week. I mean, literally just... It makes my brain want to explode. It's an amazing verse. It's just an incredible verse. You know, as I read that, so many thoughts went into my head, I, I couldn't, it would be impossible to write them all down. Just sometimes list all of God's mighty deeds throughout history. Just keep writing and writing and writing, you'll grow old doing it. List all the wonderful things He's done in your life. Incredible things. His mighty deeds. You know, perhaps the mightiest was Genesis 1-1. You know, we look at the cross, but the mightiest deed was Genesis 1-1, when God brought into existence bara ex nihilo, when he brought into existence all that exists out of nothing. That's why we had to consider the cross as such a great event in the history of mankind because God created man and then man rebelled in the garden and, and rebelled against God and has been rebelling against him ever since. And, and, uh, but God brought into existence all things, everything. It's amazing. Everything that you see, everything you can even fathom, God brought into existence. The seen, the unseen, Colossians 1 says, everything you can imagine. And he breathed into it the breath of life. As I said, man was created in the image of God and everything else was given life. The world is supernaturally alive as we're going to see. Incredible world we live in. Jesus would have made the stones even cry out on the day he entered Jerusalem as their Savior. 
and they would have cried out. The trees will clap their hands someday. All of creation will scream the praises of God. Hard to fathom, but the world is so alive, you can just feel it, but it's muted now because of sin. And man sinned, and the world became so wicked that that uh, God wiped it out with the flood, right? There's evidence of the flood just everywhere. That's why they're afraid of global warming. What if the ice caps melted? We would be inundated with water, right? We'd drown. Not that I believe in global warming, but it's just, uh, that's why there is a real fear of that, because we would all drown, because there's so much water in this world, it's amazing. But he spared Noah. And then he, established, he called out Abraham out of Uriel Chaldees. He, he established his chosen people Israel, called them out of Egypt into the promised land, and through them the Messiah would come. And he sent his son. This is the second greatest event in the history of the world. He sent his son to be the redeemer, the, the savior of mankind, that, that we might be redeemed and receive the forgiveness of our sins. Then he established his church on the day of Pentecost after Christ's resurrection and ascension and, and down through the ages countless millions have been brought to faith in Jesus and will spend eternity in the new heavens and new earth where death and pain and suffering are forever abolished and forgotten. I believe that's the third greatest event in the history of the world, but it's yet future. Those are some of his mighty deeds. We could fill in the gaps with hundreds, if not thousands, of other things. And add to that the multitude of blessings he has done individually on each of our behalves down through the ages, and we can begin to understand that we should praise him for his mighty deeds. Now, as I thought about this some more, I love the order here says, praise him for his mighty deeds, then praise him for his excellent greatness. Because as we praise God for his mighty deeds, it saves, serves to magnify his mighty person in our life. We don't just go, oh yeah, there's a God, whoopee-doo, I'm so excited. You start praising him for what he's done in your life, you start praising him for what he's done in the history of the world, and it won't be whoopee-doo, it'll be raising your hands in praise and honor and glory of Him, right? Because as we praise Him for His mighty deeds in history and as we praise Him for our great salvation and all the other wonderful things He has done for us, it then magnifies His excellent person. Let me show you what I mean. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We've gone over this hundreds of times here, and he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Okay, Jesus didn't come into your life just to make you a nicer person, a better you, a more fabulous, wonderful, whatever you are. That's not why he didn't come in to save your marriage, he didn't come in to, you know, save your business and whatever else you want saved, or he didn't come in to heal your sick whatever. He came to save you because you were spiritually dead. Dead 
unregenerate, totally without life spiritually. In fact, it's even worse than that. He says that uh, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Think of the course of this world. Think of the hideous course of this world. It's just awful place. All the sin and the rebellion that's going on. And he says, uh, according to the prince of the power of the air, you were satanically energized, satanically influenced, if not possessed. And he says, uh, now working in the sons of disobedience. We were sons and daughters of disobedience. Then he says, among them too, we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And were by nature children of wrath. You were not only dead spiritually, walking satanically influenced at the least, but you are a child of wrath. That means you're a child destined for damnation and hell. That's you. That's me. That's hard to realize, isn't it? I, I just thought Jesus gave them a life to make me a more wonderful me. You know, that you'd think that from listening to a lot of preachers these days. But that's not why he came to save you. You were damned. You were dead. You were about to be delivered into Satan's clutches in hell. Now, when you read the next verse, does this serve to magnify the grace and mercy and love of God when you understand what you really are? He says, but God being rich in mercy... Couldn't find a more superlative word, just rich. God's rich. He's a billion, billion, billionaire, zillionaire in mercy. Because of his great love, mega, that's the word, mega love. <laughs> we, we talk about mega things. You know, we're all into mega. That was a mega home run. But God is a mega lover. And then he says, with which he loved us. Even when we we're dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And then he says, by grace you have been saved. Tell me, if you really understand who you were and what you were saved from, does that serve to magnify the grace and mercy and love of God? Rather than just going, oh, you know, God's lucky to have me because, yeah, I'm a wonderful person. I've lived a good life, and, you know, I'm rich and wealthy. I've needed nothing. That's the church at the end of the age. The real church understands its deadness and its lostness, and it understands the grace and mercy and love of God that has been poured out on our behalf and without measure. You know, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I would just encourage you to really consider your lostness. You can be a nice sinner or an evil sinner, but you're still a sinner. You've fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23 says. You're in desperate need of Christ because all sin is sin and all sin is rebellion against God. And to have God not in your life, you're in trouble. Eternal damnation awaits you. But on the other hand, if you really come to terms with that, God's love and mercy is rich on your behalf, it's great on your behalf, and his grace would be poured out on your life. 
I don't know what you think is a better deal, but I sure enjoy the grace and mercy and love of God. It's transformed my life. It's made me who I am. It's, in fact, it's the reason I exist. I'd be dead otherwise. I wouldn't even be alive. I would live this life and die the second death at the great white throne judgment and never be alive and still breathing. It's a horrible thought, isn't it? Now, as I consider my lostness and spiritual deadness and my total inability to please God or earnest favor, and as I contemplate the mighty deeds of God in giving this spiritually dead man eternal life, and not only that, not only eternal life, but he's made me his son. Romans eight seventeen. he's made me his heir. He's made me a joint heir with his very own son, Jesus Christ. He's made me a citizen of heaven. I own the universe. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? Because we're heirs of God and he is the creator of the universe. Just keep that in mind. As dead as we are pre-Christ, that's how alive we are after Christ. The life he's given us is just unbelievable if you'll just sit down and contemplate it and think about it. So we see as we consider the mighty deeds of God, it serves to magnify the mighty person of God in our minds and hearts and that leads to continual praise and worship of God. Just try it sometime when you're feeling low or if you're, even if you're feeling good. Lock yourself in a room or in the car or go out and sit under a tree somewhere and just contemplate the mighty deeds of God and see how long you can keep from praising Him for what He's done and who He is and see if it doesn't serve to magnify the wonder of His person. Then thirdly, let's look for a moment at the everything of worship, verses 3 through 5. He says, uh, praise him with trumpet sound. I noticed we didn't have a trumpet this morning, but it would be permissible. Um, praise him with harp and lyre. We could add that to the worship team. Anybody play those things? Um, praise him with timbrel and dancing. I'm not sure about that, but... Uh, that's what it says. The timbrel is one of those, you know, kind of, I don't even know how to describe it, but it, it makes a lot of noise and, you know, you beat it on. Yeah. Thanks, Jake. And dancing and uh, praising with stringed instrument and pipe, praising with loud cymbals, praising with resounding cymbals. Now, I don't know what loud and resounding, the difference there, but there is a difference in says that's acceptable, doesn't it? Now, at the risk of being misunderstood, let me just say our God loves all kinds of music when it is directed to his praise and his glory. I, we had a great black guy named uh, Robert who attended here quite a few years ago with his wife and kids, and, and uh, we, we got pretty close, and he gave me some rap music by a group I think called Ephesians 6, and I played it. And it had some of the best theology I have ever heard in music. Incredible. Incredible stuff. Uh, you probably even heard them uh, in various movies or whatever, but um, great theology. 
Music was, you know, it's not my style, but it was to the praise and glory of God. He also loves loud music. Trumpet sound, the instrument used to call an assembly or call an army to battle. It'd be fun at the beginning of a service to have the trumpet call us to battle, right? Or as we leave the church, you know, go out and, you know, we're in the world, take the gospel to the world. There's, there's all kinds of applications here, but uh, he is to be praised with loud cymbals and resounding cymbals or drum sets, electric guitars. That's interesting, huh? Uh, we're to make a joyful noise to the Lord. I believe the louder, the better, personally. But, uh, or worship can be a little more subdued with harp and lyre, with stringed instrument and pipe, making melody in our hearts to the Lord as it talks about a spirit-filled person. Or it can be enthusiastic with timbrel and dancing and the raising of hands. I remember when Marty Upton was alive and well, and he had come to church, and he would stand right over there, and he'd be dancing while we're... we're we're uh, doing worship and even during the sermon. I didn't let it distract me, but it was, uh, it was great. And Marty did it from a pure heart. There wasn't any motivation there to draw attention to himself. He did it in the back, and, and uh, he was doing it to the praise and glory of God. But, or it can be, uh, I think I'll stop there. But notice that the point of all this is that we are praising Him. That's the point. You know, it's easy, we've seen this over and over again, but it's easy for a musician to get wrapped up in his playing and how good he is and how wretched everybody else is. And, you know, he can start worshiping in a sense himself or herself, or whatever, because nobody becomes good enough for them. But the point is, the mode and instrument of worship is very secondary to the one we worship. Since when is worship, when does it have anything to do with our taste? You know, oh, I can't worship there. Well, you got a problem, not wherever there is. You can't worship there. You haven't got a heart of worship, and you need to develop a heart of worship because you can worship God with everything you have. I don't care where you are. I've never gone to a bad worship service unless they're preaching heresy. And that was only once or twice. But notice it's who we worship. Praise Him by whatever means you can. If you have an instrument, praise Him with that. If you want to dance in the back, notice I said in the back. <laughs> Do that. Praise Him with that. If you want to raise your hands, raise your hands. Praise Him with, with expression. If you want to fall on your face in adoration of God, you feel led to do that? Do that. We had some kids from, uh, uh, what's the school that you were working at, Dave? Azusa. Azusa Pacific. We had a group one time that came and, and 
several of the kids would get on their face and worship God during our worship services. It was very inspiring. It was very moving to watch. And God, I think, his heart was moved too. It wasn't done in a showy fashion, but, but it was praise and adoration of God. The usual way is with our voice, isn't it? And as we sing, we sing as unto the Lord. We're not worried about who's in front of us, who's in back of us, who's at the side of us, and what they're thinking of, whether we sound like a frog croaking or we sound like an angel singing. That's not the point. The point is, who are you worshiping? Who are you praising? Who are you giving glory to? And it better be God. Because fourthly, that's the end result of a life of worship. Look at verse 6. He says, let everything that has breath. You got breath this morning? All right. I don't hear an affirmation of that. You got breath this morning? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. In one final summary statement, David defines the whole of life for us. It's an incredible thing. Hallelujah. One word in the Hebrew. Praise and worship the one true God. You know, William Plummer once said of David, he said, David is the psalmist of eternity. What a destiny. What a power hath poetry when inspired by God. Then he added, the little shepherd has become the master of the sacred choir of the universe. And as he expressed that, David, let's say David got the point. Praise God. Hallelujah. Now, whether those accolades of David are deserved or not, David did get it right. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. More profound words, I believe, were never spoken. God defines one, God defines life in one word through David. Hallelujah. That's it. <laughs> now, rather than trying to comment on that last verse, I just wanted us to read Psalms 148 together. That's why I didn't have it read in the scripture reading. Psalms 148. Notice again it begins and ends with praise the Lord, but he says, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Speaking of the host of heaven, the, the angels and the saints of all time who have preceded us. Praise Him, sun and moon. Hmm. I always thought of them as inanimate, but they're alive, aren't they? Praise Him, all stars of light. You know, Psalms 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmaments, his handiwork, day to day, pours forth speech, night to night, reveals knowledge. And that's true, isn't it? Praise him, highest heavens, and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. That's why. God created them, so praise God. You're a creation of God, so praise God. He's also established them forever and ever and has made a decree which will not pass away. Genesis 1, you know, God spoke the world into existence. It says, praise him from the earth, sea monsters in all depths, <laughs> fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind fulfilling his word. 
mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creepy things, creeping things, <laughs> and winged fowls. They are creepy, aren't they? But uh, he says, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all judges of the earth, both young men and virgins, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His glory is above the earth and heaven. And he has lifted up a horn for his people, praise for all his godly ones. Even for the sons of Israel, people near to him, praise the Lord. That gets across the point, doesn't it? Beloved, someday soon, when Christ is revealed in all his glory during the revelation, and the creation is set free from its bondage to sin and futility, as Romans 8 tells us it will be, the whole creation is going to let loose in praise to its creator. There will be nothing to hold it back. Let me just close by reading, you don't have to turn there, but Revelation chapter 5. In verses 11 through 14. This is the scene in heaven as Christ begins to reclaim the earth and liberate it from the rebellion of man and from the, the curse of sin. It says, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads. In Greek, that means ten thousands upon ten thousands and thousands of thousands. And what were they saying? And they're saying with a loud voice, notice, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Sevenfold praise of the Lamb. And every created thing, get that? Every created thing, that's everything, which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. You know, finally, in the end, the, the sin-cursed earth is liberated from it and all of creation just goes into the praise and glory of God and Christ. And the four living creatures who are somehow associated with the creation kept saying, Amen. So be it. So be it. They longed for that day. Says, and the elders fell down and worshiped. That'll be you and me worshiping at the throne if we get there at that point. And we'll be saying, Hallelujah, <laughs> I would imagine. You know, it's a wonderful thing to know who we are in Christ. And to really know what Christ has done for us. And then to give Christ the praise and the glory and the honor he deserves for what he's done. It serves to magnify his person. Don't ever forget the ugly, sinful, wretched, dead life he took you from. And the wonderful life he's called you to. It's incredible. We should be contemplating that every day. Every time we have a free moment. I mean, don't walk around contemplating running into trees and light posts. But think in those terms. 
Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him for his excellent greatness. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the fact that you have done such mighty deeds throughout history and you've done one of the mightiest deeds that could ever be done when you took this stone-cold, sinful heart of mine and you opened it up and gave me a heart of flesh that I might understand your gospel, that I might understand the word of God, that you died for our sins according to the scriptures, that you were buried and three days later you rose from the dead according to the scriptures. Thank you, Lord, that for all these years that I've based my life on that. And Lord, for that I praise you and honor you and glorify you. And there is no one in heaven or earth that is worthy of that but you. And so we praise you and thank you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.